Scuba Obsessed weekly podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 364 is recorded live April 19th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where a winner does not know when to give up. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here. Yeah, how about that? I who, Who'd have thought that we'd have two inches of ice in the middle of January? Did not plan on that. Yeah, I was up in, in lovely Saginaw, Michigan on the other side near Lake Huron and uh, they... I, I went in the building in the morning and it was somewhat sunny and then came out at about five o'clock and not only had it ice, but it had frozen everything to the ground. So it was, uh, we, we were out there trying to figure out how we were going to thaw locks on trailers. I'd like to thank everybody who's tuning in this week. We had a couple off weeks where we weren't recording. I was with my son at robotics competitions and they did quite well. Uh, the first competition was the second district event that they had. Uh, they ended up coming in seated second, uh, formed the second alliance, and made it all the way to finals uh, and didn't end up winning. The uh, Another team, another alliance won that event. We then went to the state competition where 160 teams from Michigan then went and competed. Uh, what they do is they divide the teams into four divisions of 40 teams each. Our team at the end of the qualifying rounds ended up being seated second, formed an alliance with one of the teams that had beat us the week before, and we ended up uh, uh, winning the division. Uh, we made it to the uh, final playoffs at the event, but then end up pulling it out. But we did have enough points to qualify us for Worlds. The top 76 teams from Michigan got to go, and we were uh, seated sixth in the state out of 500 teams. Uh, so this next week, we'll be competing at Detroit, Michigan for the World Robotic Competition for first. So kids did real well. And I am getting really tired. <laughs> I feel like I've, I've been living on just a few hours of sleep. I'd like to thank all our Patreon supporters. We certainly appreciate it. And uh, if you've been listening to the show and you'd like to help us out, we certainly would, would love it. If you can't, we understand. Uh, go to our website, www.scubobsess.com. Click on the Patreon link, and that will send you over to our Patreon page. So what were you doing with your Open Thursdays? Were you out getting some dives in? Actually, I have not been doing any diving, per se. Uh, well, you know about uh, the rescue, or I should say recovery efforts that have been going on for another week? Yeah, I, I saw that uh, was going on. And okay, well, the, the initial one of the kayaker that was uh, lost, between Waterville and Coloma. Mm -hmm. uh, he was recovered several weeks ago. So that ended that. That was after 42 days of searching. Mm -hmm. So not a happy find, but at least it gave closure and the family uh, can now get insurance and items like that that they couldn't do before. And then, uh, gee, the time just goes so fast. I'm trying to remember now. That was last, then last week. Last I think Tuesday. It was Tuesday. They yep. lost another. Uh, this time downtown, basically, uh, down by Brian's Marina. A gentleman appears to have walked off a pier, an older gentleman, not intentionally, and uh, has yet to be recovered. It's interesting from the aspect that by all the search that's been performed by the safety officers, the Marine Division, uh, our divers on the, off, on the off times, like last weekend, even through now, have not found them. And it's sort of mind-boggling because of the area is somewhat limited. But, again, you do have a faster current. You do have almost no visibility. And they had dredged parts of that section out by the docks. So now you have undulating or you have, like, flat, a, a dip, mm -hmm. a rise, a dip, like where the clamshell buckets. Yeah. So if the individual happens to be wedged in there, 
uh, unless you come, you know, hand-on-hand contact, you're not going to find them. Side scans have been, un, you know, unsuccessful. A lot of targets, but uh, nothing so far. Yeah, and, and there's who knows what objects underwater that somebody could get tangled up in as well. Right. There's a lot of debris in that area, especially as you start to get out towards the river. It's more current than you had it, or we had expected uh, in certain sections of the docking and piers. Uh, and again, down there in the dark, again, it's been awkward and difficult. Well, hopefully for the sake of the families, we're able to, or somebody's able to find uh, something pretty soon. Yeah, that's the hope. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have is a follow-up to one that we reported. If you remember, we, we mentioned the story of the scuba diver hospitalized after getting his uh, penis stuck in the giant clam. And it looked to be in a reputable site, but sometimes even reputable sites can be spoofed. And in this case, Snopes is now reporting that the rumors about the sexually adventurous scuba diver brought down by the selfish allergy originated on a satirical website. The claim was that the diver has hospitalized due to allergic reaction after getting stuck in a giant clam. It originated in March 2018, a well-known satire site, the World Daily News Report, published a fake news article about scuba divers suffered a severe allergic reaction after he was uh, trapped inside the giant clam. Uh, the, the website is a satirical website, has a long history of publishing misinformation. The site, which appears to have a slight fixation on bestiality as evidenced by the previously published stories about humans assaulting octopuses, alligators, orangutans, and gorillas, carries a disclaimer in the footer stating, uh, assumes all responsibility for the satirical nature of its articles and for the fictional nature of the content all characters appearing in the articles in this website, even those based on real people, are entirely fictional. Any resemblance between them and any person living or dead or undead is purely a miracle. In addition to the source of the story, one could determine the article is a piece of fake news by examining the three uh, included photographs. The first image comes from the 2012 video featuring a doctor and Hawaii State Senator Josh Green, who is not Andrew Smith. The middle image shows an unrelated photograph of a giant clam taken by an underwater photographer and red bubble user Spring. Interestingly, the final image is a deal with a man hospitalized a curious infection interaction with an animal, according to ABC News, shows an 18-year-old man from Florida who was hospitalized after he tried to kiss a cottonmouth snake. So how are they saying that's obvious? Like people are going to remember all these photos? I think that's stretching it a bit. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the average person on the internet is not going to look at that photo and know that that's the wrong doctor, that that's some stock photo of a clam, and that's somebody from another thing. So, uh, and that, that's why it was so effective, uh, is that it appeared to be real, and somehow it got on other websites other than this one because I don't believe. Let me look. I can I can find out here. I'll go back to our show notes from that day and see if we were pulling it from that website, because that's one thing I do look at is to see if it's one of the satire websites. That was episode 363. Yeah, it, it was a completely, it was a different one. It was E-Bombs World, which said nothing about being a satire. So, yeah, I, you know, I was kind of skeptical, but, you know, it's one of those you can't pass up, which is why it works. Uh, and then we have Point Verde Beach Shipwreck, Final Voyage. If you remember, we covered this one a couple weeks ago as well. The archaeologists are supervising a move of the 150-year-old hull to the GTM Research Reserve. The massive piece of hull that's believed to be a wooden sailing ship built in the 1800s washed ashore on March 27 after a period of heavy storm and wave activity. Not only did it pique the interest of history buffs that made national headlines, hundreds of people and families came to the beach just to have a chance to see it. The state of Florida, the St. Augustine Lighthouse Museum, moved the wreck off the beach Thursday, transporting it to a new home at the Guano Tomato Manza National Estuarine Research Reserve. What name is that? Uh, a state facility about one mile away where it washed up. Uh, riggers carefully transported secure parts of the sunken ship to a tractor. It drew a small crowd. Even bystanders led a hand as it slowly made its way across the beach. Process took nearly four hours completed without the wreckage breaking apart. It was a ton of release, said Chuck Mead, director of LAMP. Archaeologists believe the ship was built sometime between 1830 and 1860 when it first discovered. 
It was a visible tool marks and Roman numerals in the hall. It's amazing, Paul Mole of St. Augustine said. Unbelievable how old it is. Archaeologists also believe it came from somewhere in the southern United States and wrecked relatively early in its career as a merchant cargo carrier. They believe it was buried for over a century. The Rev said the wreckage will be on display as early as Friday. Lamp is trying to raise money to further study and preserve the shipwreck. Anyone who wishes to donate can visit the program's Facebook page. Wow, I I, I was completely out of it. I didn't hear that this had uh, gotten so big that they're actually thinking of doing something. Now, it doesn't sound from this article like there's intent, intent to preserve it. They're just dragging it up almost like a curiosity so that people come to, was it their museum? Well... I still have the exception to the word section. I mean, I would prefer they say section of the hull because it certainly is not a large part of the boat. No. And I'm looking at the, the big point where they have, look like it's by a drone. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, maybe three hunks of wood. If you took uh, three golf carts and put them in, in, you could probably cover it up. So it's not a hull. It's part of the mm-hmm. boat. Yeah. So if you go to their Facebook page where the article links, they have raised $620 out of the $10,000 they're looking for. 18 people donated over seven days. And they give a little bit of uh, different information down below about what they're doing. I still would have liked to see a better close-up to see if those are really wooden or if they're actually spiked. Yeah. Well, it, click over the Facebook page. They actually have... Uh, uh, a close-up of where they're taking, um, I'd call it almost like a sky crane, like a, a big tractor with a fork on it, like you would see in construction sites. Yeah. And they're placing it. Did you see that video? Uh, no, there's a whole section that I'm looking at now that you can click on and go through a menu of different pictures, and that's what I'm trying to find a close-up. Yeah, they've got one. Um, about the only thing that's really close is because the, one of the beams is right next to the camera, and you can see it. Yeah, I see that's got straps and ropes around it. Mm-hmm. But I don't see any of the uh, attachment points. <laughs> I wonder how much that hunk of wood weighs. They got a fairly beefy tractor for it. Yeah, there's only five planks across it. Uh, I'd, I'd say it's pretty hefty, especially if it was waterlogged. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, look at the size of those. Look how thick those ribs are. Yeah. Okay, here's a real good shot of the. They, they do look like they're wood. They don't look like they're metal from the picture. Yeah, here's a real good shot. I I am surprised. Don't see any zebra muscles on them either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or quagga, quagga, or barnacles. Uh, if it was in the ocean, no, it must have been buried in the sand, though. Yeah, that that's what they're thinking. That because usually out that way they don't have uh, pieces of lumber like this that survive long. Now the worms would have gotten to it. So for them, this is a pristine shipwreck. Yeah, I always love that, pristine. Yeah, and, and they said large portion. I, I, I think we need to define what, what constitutes a large portion. Is uh, 3% or 5% large, or is it large compared, you know, if it's bigger than a bread box or something? Well, from the ships that we know about, what percentage of that wood would make a ship? 5% I mean, of that? Yeah. Not even yeah. that. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I mean, it looks big when you're up to it, and that's big pieces, but that's not a large portion of it. It's got 12 ribs. Those ribs. So really close together, though, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would certainly, if I was down there, go take a look at it. I'd like to uh, take some pictures of the spikes and stuff, yeah, wooden or otherwise. Yeah, the, the thing I'll be curious on is if they don't preserve it, you know, if they just leave it outside, how many years do you give that before that completely disintegrates? Down there, three or four years, and it'll be really eaten up. Yeah. Now we have an article out of South Africa. Two missing scuba divers found unscathed offshore of Port Elizabeth after hours at sea. Two divers have been rescued after they became separated from the dive boat and drifted more than eight kilometers from the original dive site off uh, shore of Port Elizabeth. The National Sea Rescue Institute said on Sunday, NSRI Port Elizabeth duty crew were activated just after 9.30 a.m. on Sunday following reports from the Nordhook Ski Boat Club of two scuba divers missing during a dive two nautical miles offshore of Cape was it Recife, R-E-C-I-F-E, R-S-R-I Port Elizabeth Station Commander Ian Gray said. They've been reported about 
9.20 a.m., the Marine Training Center commercial boat had a group of recreational divers in the water being led by a dive master. At the same dive, they have a dive instructor with a student diver conducting a deep sea dive. While diving, the dive master finding visibility conditions to be poor at the dive site called for the dive to be aborted. Two recreational dive divers and a dive master surfaced, and they recovered onto the dive boat, but the instructor, diver, and student diver surfaced away from the boat against the morning sun that could not be seen in the water by the crew of the dive boat. The crew, fearing the two divers may not have surfaced, marked the spot, started a search, and contacted the ski boat club to raise the alarm. The club turn, in turn alerted NSRI Port Elizabeth, Gray said. Various boats joined the search led by the NSRI whilst shoreline search was conducted and a helicopter flew a search pattern. NSRI took all seven boats participating to search 100 meters apart and swept line search was initiated, taking into account the direction of the current and the winds. During the sweeping line search at 12.13 p.m., we came across the two divers floating approximately 4.5 nautical miles, 8.33 kilometers northeast of the initial area where they had been diving at approximately 4 nautical miles offshore in line with Koga, Gray said. An NSRI rescue swimmer was deployed in the surf, and the two divers recovered into the sea rescue craft. Both were in good spirits and were treated for mild hypothermia, but otherwise were only a bit tired and obviously happy to be rescued. They were brought to shore uh, where paramedics checked them out, and they were released requiring no thir- further medical attention. They confirmed that they were... They confirmed that with the sun behind them, they could see the dive boat, but the dive boat could not see them after they had surfaced. They drifted further away, and that they could no longer be... Uh, see their dive boat, but they could see the search had been started. While drifting, they made themselves comfortable. They stayed together and, and drifted. At one stage, they could hear the helicopter knowing the search was underway. They later heard the motors of the boat searching for them before the sea rescue craft Spirit of Troft came across them during the first leg of the sweeping line search. Rescue diving instructor Gene Simon, 45, and his student diver Rosano, I'm not even going to try that one, 36, are both local residents. The NSRA commended all service and private and commercial boats involved and the Nordhook Ski Boat Club, in particular the MTC commercial dive boat that raised the alarm without any hesitation and marking the initial site in the beginning of the search are to be commended. It came to our attention that only after the rescue operation that uh, Rosano applied to join the NSRA Port Elizabeth as an NSRI instructor. His application was accepted two weeks ago, and although he is not yet started his training. He is an NSRI trainee crew member. So one of the guys they found was uh, uh, going to be uh, a future member of their group, it sounds like, if I'm keeping my names well, correct. he'll have firsthand experience on what needs to be done. Yeah. Well, uh, It's and, interesting, too, that they were only out there three hours. They raised the alarm, had that much activity in the search pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing I wish I'd known is they have a flag, submersible, Safety sausage or anything like that yeah. with them. I'm guessing not, but they didn't say because it seemed like if you had that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't even if the sun was behind you, you'd be able to see them. That is going to be awkward. No, I, I mean if you know we have a, a low sun. Well, it's in the morning, so the sun must have been coming up because it was nine something in the morning. So it it could have been very awkward to see them. Yeah. Well, and but they did everything right. I mean, it. Uh, they didn't wait. And delay, uh, you know, they marked their location so they had a nice central point for the for the search, and then it was a visible location so that they could determine uh, wind conditions. Yeah, and they didn't not, go back to port and say, "Hey, I think we're missing some divers," or, or or wait till the next day to then say, "Hey, what's this extra gear?" Yeah, they were they were sounded like a good protocol they had, and they used when and out do it. The next article we have is the Catalina from the Catalina Islander scuba diving. Where have all the sea stars gone? We've been following this for years. The uh, kind of a wasting disease that had been uh, taken on sea stars. Uh, the article says it's difficult to think about the ocean without sea stars coming into one's imagination. In fact, there are well over a thousand different species of the marine invertebrate from the hot and humid tropics all the way down to the freezing polar regions. They live in a, Tidal zone areas can be found as deep as 20,000 feet below the ocean surface. Um, they Then later down in the article, they say, unfortunately, these species and others have disappeared from California's coastal waters, leaving a lot of us to wonder what the heck happened. There are quite a few theories, speculation 
out there floating around, yet no one really knows why. Scientists and researchers have been busy trying to find the cause of the tragic event. One thing for sure, Mother Nature isn't always speaking. If only more of us would pay attention, let's take a look at our official marine forecast for the island now, shall we, this afternoon? Oh, and then they go on. It, it sounds like they didn't do any research for this article. I don't know. One of the items that says, uh, the species feeds on coral polyps, and when the presence goes unchecked by predators, they can devastate an entire area. Now, if that's true, you would think you'd see lots of them. I'm just puzzled why they didn't go and research this. Because we we know from uh, divers up in Oregon and Washington that this is a whole West Coast issue and that there's a wasting disease, but they didn't even mention that. Yeah, they just said here, quite a few theories and speculations out there floating around. No one really knows why. So they're basically pooled that all together and said, since we don't know, we'll just say that. Yeah. And then uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, there's a special program that's teaching blind children to scuba dive. The the Heritage of Green Hills in Camrua Township hosted a scuba diving class for 10 to 14-year-olds from Vision Corp, a Lancaster nonprofit that empowers people who are blind or vision impaired to attain independence. Organizers said Saturday's event further Vision Corp's goal of independence. Wow, I, that, that's, a, that's a quick article. And short. Yeah. hope they provide a little bit more detail. I think there's actually more, more content in the comments than in the article. What kind of comments did they have? Well, one that said, I would be very interested in knowing which organization is permitting children of these ages to become divers. The industry standard age becomes certified as 10 years old and up. Very young children must be very closely guarded if they're expected to scuba dive in our shop and by the standards of all. Four of our sets of guidelines, we'd never permit anyone is this young to join a class. Well, there's, I mean, are they taking this out of context? Because it's not well, that they're teaching, it's not that these are going to be independent scuba divers. This is a program to introduce them. So they're going to be a blind scuba diver, you're hoping would be heavily escorted. And it's not so much you're really teaching them the scuba dive, you're you're trying to give them some some independence and confidence, you know, to, to show sure. them. And then did you read the other article that says that sometimes happens when getting news coverage when they do fantastic things with children. Uh, there are no children that are less than 10 years of our age. And in addition, all medical liability forms are signed by doctors, giving them a chance to experience to try scuba part of a program. Mm-hmm. It's like what we've been doing up north yeah, with handicap issues where we've actually had quadriplegics amputees, uh, a varied assortment of uh, illnesses and, and issues. And it's not you're teaching them to, you're allowing them to experience the aspect of scuba diving. And obviously they have to be trainable, otherwise you could not do that either. Yeah. Yeah, and this is heavily supervised. It's in a pool. Uh, I, I... And, and all the people that we've worked with, it's it, like you said, it builds up their independence aspect and says, yeah, I may not be able to do this, but hey, I'm scuba dive or yeah. scuba dive. So Very controlled. Yeah. Is, is, assuming there was proper uh, preparation and supervision, I, I don't see a problem with it. You know, we're, they're not taking them deep at all. Okay, let's see the next one. Uh, this one uh, is, uh, I'm sure it's a big giant commercial for Red Bull. It was from, on the Red Bull website. But they list 10 UK wreck dives that you probably don't want to miss, which I, I mean, I, I'm open for them all. And uh, let, let me see, Mac, if you've heard of any of these. The first one they have on the list is SMS Colon, C O L N, Scapa Flow, Ornke Island. So, you know, we're all familiar with Scapa Flow. Um, dive instructor John McLeod says, My favorite is the Colne. It's probably the most intact wreck we've got. It's 25 to 30 meters depth open to all. The swim from the perfectly intact bow to the lifeboat devots is a highlight, especially late summer when it's packed with fish. The stern is a great dive in itself with two 5.9-inch guns. Boy, it sounds like that'd be great. And then they have the Tabarak, Scapa Flow, same location. At 15 meters deep within with unique features, this block ship is up there with the scapa's best, surrounded by currents, so it's only suitable for sports divers 
and above all though BSAC clubs dive here and diving in depth offer tra- technical training inside an oasis of calm an oasis of calm packed with all kinds of marine life goodies to uncover there's even a zip zipping drift dive to the surface and then they have the SS Mohegan the manacle south cornwall that watercolor looks like what we see sometimes on the Ann Arbor 5 uh uh, they have 110 plus wrecks here. The best known is a flattened shell of the SS Mohan, said to be haunted. The 19th century steamer sank in 1898 with a loss of 160, 106 lives. And then they have the uh, Abyssinia and the Farne Islands, Northumberland, one of British's most dangerous shipping areas. The Farne Islands are littered, littered with wrecks. A German steamship uh, is probably the largest, Abyssinia. Uh, gray seals are a high laser dive as you dive through the gully at knife stone and drop down the ship's boilers. I've even seen a seal resting in one of the boilers, says Ben Burville. And then their fifth wreck on the list is the MV Robert and Iona 2 laundry. It's a hot, uh, the area is a hot spot for shipwreck and seals. At 20 meters depth, the MV Robert is one of the best. It's the only intact wreck around Lundy. It's full of life. Uh, the SS fiend of north cornwall uh it was carrying coal stuck a rock in 1946 sank to 23 meters near mollus stern stands up there's a lot of coal and still see the damage of the keel festooned in pink sea fans it's often alive with fish inside there's nothing but silt salt set and m2 lime bay dorset uh former p&o liner that was torpedoed in 1917 in the m2 uh, is at 35 meters an atmospheric submarine and protected war grave are absolute must staple of many experienced divers. And eighth is HMS Scylla in James Egan Lane, Whitston Bay, Devon. 115 meters long, it's, it was sunk as an artificial reef with a top deck within 18 meters, suitable for all levels, but you need a wreck diving specialty to enter. You can't come to White Sands Bay without also diving the awesome James Egan Lane at 18 meters. Uh, was used as a World War II transporter. It was torpedoed by a U-boat in 1945. And then number nine is the Lucy Pembrokeshire. The Lucy at 32 meters, which sits in the seal-rich Scomer Marine Reserve, 168-foot Dutch coaster. She sank. She struck a rock and sank in Valentine's Day in 1967. Upright and very intact. You can see everything from the cruise quarters, the engine room, and cabin. Experienced divers can swim down to the staircase between the decks. And then the number 10 one is City of Waterford, Sussex. Uh, City of Waterford at 30 meters brings smiles to most divers' faces. Ten miles from Brighton, the steamship collided with fate in 1949. The top of the wreck is at 20 meters. You can get a good long dive, lots to see, including parts of the engine room, pots, pans, and ceramic floor tiles. Interesting part of all of those is nine out of the ten are very easily within the sport depth. The submarine is about the deepest, and that would be the one I would be interested in. Yeah, there's always something drawing you deeper. How deep is the submarine? Let's see, I'm looking. I'm looking just a second. Looked like 35 meters, I think, was the deepest. Yeah, they that's had all, the... Yeah, that's only one that deep. Yeah, they had the uh, 45 meters of the P&O liner, and the M2 is at 35 meters. Well, yeah, well, yeah I, I'd certainly dive any of those. Visibility will look pretty good on most of them. And uh, you can see the shallow part where the look like GoPro pictures were taken because they're all green like ours. Yeah. I'd give those a shot anytime. And then the LiveScience.com website has a photo library, and it's called Searching for Shackleton's Endurance Shipwreck. Scientists on expedition to Antarctica early next year hope to find the wreck of the Endurance, the ship led by polar explorer Ernest Shackleton, which became icebound and sank in Weddell Sea in 1915. The modern expedition hopes to learn about the Larsen Sea ice shelf at the edge of the Weddell Sea and on the eastern side of the Antarctic Peninsula. While they're in the Weddell Sea region, the scientists on board the South African polar research ship Algus II hope to use the autonomous underwater vehicles to search beneath the ice for wreck of the Endurance, the ship was abandoned by Shackleton and his crew in October 1915 after it became trapped in the ice for many months and was starting to sink. And if, did you see that photo they show it stuck in the ice? Uh, That's pretty cool. 
Concerning that, an old, old photo. Yeah. Uh, Shackleton and his crew had planned to sail to the southern edge of the Wendell Sea from there across Antarctica overland by dog sled to Ross Sea, where they would meet, uh, where they would be met by another ship. The expedition was called the Imperial Transatlantic Expedition. The expedition leader Ernest Shackleton was an experienced marine officer on the commercial ships known as British Merchant Navy. He made two previous ship expeditions to Antarctica before he took command of the Endurance in 1914 for the Trans-Antarctic Expedition. Before the expedition could reach the coast of Antarctica, the Endurance became frozen in the ice flow from the deep south of the Weddell Sea in January 1915. Efforts by the crew to free the ship from the sea ice were unsuccessful. The crew of the Endurance spent the Antarctic winter 1915 trapped in their ship in the sea ice, which slowly drifted to the northwest. And at the end of October 1915, Shackleton and the crew abandoned the ship. It was completely crushed by the ice a few days later and sank beneath the ice the 21st of November. Wow. Do you see that photo there? Oh, yeah. That is unbelievable. It just looks like uh, firewood. I I mean, that's a rubble wreck before it went down. Uh, After abandoning... I'm sorry? It's not a pristine wreck? No, it's not going to be pristine. After abandoning the Endurance, Shackleton and the 27 other members of the expedition camped on the ice floe and attempted to reach a land by dog sled. Uh, in mid-April 1915, Shackleton's crew reached Dolphin Island, the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, and three lifeboats they had rescued from the Endurance. In late April, Shackleton and five crew members of the crew set off set out in one of the lifeboats on a sea voyage to the islands of South Georgia, where there was a whaling station to bring back help for the remaining crew camped at Elephant Island. And that's all they wrote. It was interesting how they used all their old original photos to do that. Yeah. I sometimes think that people back in those days were a lot more hale and hearty than we are. Well, you just look at what they're doing to try and keep the boat from sinking. They were actually carving up the ice to keep it around. Freaking amazing. But if your life is in danger, it's amazing what oh, you yeah. will do. You, you, you get a pretty big motivation right away. And then we have Paul Allen's expedition team discovers a third World War II shipwreck in a month. The expedition crew of Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen has yet discovered another Navy ship that was previously lost to history. The crew of the research vessel Petrol located the chunk and wreckage of the St. Louis-class light cruiser HS, H. Nice. So why is saying H? USS Helena, CL-50, late last month, only weeks after discovering the USS Juno, known for having all five Sullivan brothers on board, and less than a month after discovering the wreckage of the USS Lexington. The Helena, which was moored in Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, was sunk during the Battle of the Kula Gulf by Japanese torpedoes on the morning of July 6, 1943. Almost 75 years later, she is located resting at 860 meters below the surface on the floor of the New, jo- New Georgia Sound, off the coast of the Solomon Islands. Each ship has a story that touches family and friends who perished or survived. Robert Kraft, director of subsea operations for Allen, told the editors of Paul Allen's website, the story in the case of Helena is one of, historic, of heroic survival and part of her crew. As the ship slowly went under, sailors huddled in groups in the water while continuing to take enemy fire. Rescue operations were launched, but they had to be repeatedly suspended as U.S. destroyers were rerouted to pursue enemy ships instead. Some of the wounded from one of the huddled groups were placed in lifeboats, and able-bodied sailors clung to the side, working to push the boats towards one of the nearby islands. An effort made futile as wind and current pushed the sailors deeper into enemy territory. The flotilla of Uri sailors eventually reached island in the Vela Lavelle, the Vela Lavella, where local natives did what they could to care for the wounded. Many of the remaining soldiers, the soldiers, sailors, fled to the jungle to avoid being spotted by Japanese patrols. Finally, the Navy dispatched ships to the location and rescued the sailors, along with 16 Chinese, were also hiding on the island. Though the combined effort of the U.S. Navy ships, volunteer motor, whaleboats, and life rafts, 732 of the Helena's 900 crew were ultimately rescued over the course of 10 days. It's gratifying to hear those stories each time we announce to do discovery. We do these missions as testaments to the brave souls who served on those ships. 732 out of uh, that is 900. That's not too bad of odds. Yeah. yeah. And and it took a while. I mean, that's it's tough. You're fighting a war, and then you're also trying to save people. Oh, yeah. It'd be interesting to see how they did recover all those people and, you know, what type of interference they had from the Japanese at that time. Well, yeah, and then was that common to shoot at 
you know, when you when you sunk a big vessel, was it normal to shoot at the crew that's floating in the water? I would not think that would be something you'd normally do. Uh, one would think there'd be other ships in the area that might be shooting at you, and why do that? Yeah, it seems like it's, yeah, I don't know. It seems like from a strategic standpoint, that would be a lot of... I think it would be bad for him to strafe somebody in the water. Let's see, and I think that does it for scuba in the news. We do have one potentially cool scuba gear. These are detachable blade fin systems could simplify scuba diving. The skiers already utilize binding systems that let them simply click their boots in and out of their skis. Folks at Canadian company Certatech thought the same sort of technology should be applied to the, applied to the blades of scuba fins. Result is a rather intriguing look aquatobionic aquatic binding system. Ordinary scuba divers either wear neoprene booties that are, uh, that open heeled fins are strapped onto, or they use fins with built in foot pockets. Well, one big advantage of the booties is they make it easier to walk over the rough rocks or and whatnot in order to reach the water. It can also be awkward getting the fins on over them once you're in the water. The ABS system instead consists of a pair of polyurethane aquatic shoes that are worn while both walking and swimming along with a set of blades that quickly snap on or off the front of the via a pair of binding clips. So the idea is that you just wear them just as shoes on your feet while climbing over the rocks, then simply pop the blades onto them once you reach the water and do the reverse of when you get out. Along with the convenience. What's that? I was going to say, I'm looking at the shoes or the fins. They look like they'd be very awkward to try to handle in the water. You know, your feet, you got them off your feet, but when you got your fins off, you got them, you got straps to hang on to them. Right. Well, and that's the thing of of those. Carabiner off or something, but. Yeah, those of us who have put fins on in the water, I mean, other than the flexibility challenge, uh, like the open heel that they're talking about, that's that's where spring fins are, are nice, is you put your toe in the the pocket and you grab onto the spring and you just pull over the heel. And that I don't find that difficult at all. I find that a little bit easier than the old strap ones. But the strap ones really weren't bad either because the strap could be kind of loose and then you would just kind of ratchet the strap on either side. This, without trying it, it would be hard to gauge whether it's going to be any easier and then the angle of them looks a little awkward, so I, I wonder, do they function as a regular fin? I was looking at it from the aspect that if I got my heavy-duty 7 mil 5 or even my mitts when it's 50 degree, I don't think I'd get those snaps off. Not to mention, once I got the snap off, how again do I hold those two loose fins like that? Mm-hmm. Well, and also, how, how much of a thermal protection are those boots? For us up here, the advantage of having boots in a wetsuit is that they're they're insulating. Uh, if that doesn't have a whole lot of insulation value in it, you're going to be a little chilly. Or right now, I'm just looking at it. It doesn't because your ankles aren't good. The arch of your foot or the top of your foot doesn't have any insulation on it. Yeah. So you're going to be, no, this has got to be warm water stuff. Yeah. Interesting, but I'm yeah. looking at that. It doesn't look like that's really substantial. Yeah. I you, can just see when the, that, that nose part breaking off. Is, is this a solution in look of a problem? I, I'm not, I wasn't aware that it was that big a deal. Now, if they had one that like automatically found your foot and one on, yeah, now we're talking. Uh, so that they're saying is that this is on a Kickstarter project. So they're saying a pledge of $195 will get you a set that includes either type of non-carbon blades. Assuming everything goes to plan, the planned retail price is two ninety nine, And I'm looking at the Kickstarter website. And they've already met their goal. The goal was $51,792, and they've raised 76327 They had 249 backers, and there's still 11 days to go, so if you want to get one. Now, now the this looks better actually on the website. Have, have you gone to the Kickstarter, Mac? No, I have not. Uh, it looks like the fins they're showing in the photos are bad shots of uh, split fins. Fins. And when you actually go to the other one, they have uh, much larger fins, which is I would think would be uh, a little bit better. Let me see. Do they show? Oh, they connect in. Yeah, I just kicked on Kickstarter. Let me see if I can get it. It kind of looks at it. It depends on how that clamping system works. Well, they said like a ski binder. I'm not familiar with a ski binder. Yeah, well, the ski binding, usually you got a ski and you put the boot in and then you step down in the heel and it latches in. So you 
You can kind of do it without hands. They've got a video, which I'm not going to play now, but that may show a little bit better about how it works. It still seems like a weak point to me. I don't know. It says neoprene liners are available in 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 millimeter for thermal insulation. So it looks like you're going to have to have some sort yeah, of... I am looking at the video now. Now, if you're in a rocky area and you do a lot of like shore dives, it looks like that could be something that's kind of nice. I just put my fins on. <laughs> yeah, I, I again, look, it's it's a solution looking for a problem. I'm not seeing. Well, I'm looking at the guy sitting on the bench there or on the steps putting his fins on. It's like, uh, okay. And we do that with regular fins. Yeah. I'm looking at the kick too. I wonder what some of the comments say. Be nice if yeah, any any by uh, somebody who's had them or used them. Huh. Yeah, I'm looking at the comments. Uh, well, one set of those is what three hundred and forty-nine dollars. I wouldn't think so. What was that? Is that what they're going for? Aqua Bionic System times two, three ninety-nine. Oh, okay, that's two pair of the hybrid shoes, two sets of boot binding clip, two sets of warp blade fins, and warp hybrid fins. And I like the one though. For five thousand dollars, because there's a weak scuba diving trip to Tulum. <laughs> well, I guess that's a little bit of, you know, honey. I just bought some fins. I don't know what you're so upset about. Yeah. <laughs> well, that does it for scuba in the news. Let's see here. Nobody in the chat room yelling at me because we. I for, I forgot to paste in there. I got so distracted. I'm rusty at this. It's been a while. So has anybody in the club, I'm the, I, we've been doing those uh, searches, has anybody had any recreational dives you're aware of? Um, Kevin, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, we know Kevin's going to get I some I think Kevin's uh, the latest one. I think he actually was out today down at uh, Woods Lake down in Kalamazoo. Um, I know Bob and him were talking about the um, Diamond Lake dive, but I'm not sure who did or did not go on that one. That would have been Sunday, I believe. Uh the big lake has been rather rough, so nobody's been out there. Uh, I know Jim did have another uh, exciting dive, um, one of the midnight call-outs. So he gets out there with the fire department. Oh, uh, lady had driven her car into the off the road uh, to you know a place where it flooded over, went off, went into a ditch that's over ten foot deep. Uh, matter of fact, he talked about this at the dive club because of an interesting item about it. They got down, car is basically out. One of the guys gets in, he's on the top of the car, is he's above his waist still in water. Uh, the window on the driver's side is partially down just a little bit. Uh, Jim and them, Jim had his dive gear, went down, tried to break the window, couldn't break the window. They oh, couldn't wow. break the front window. Uh, so they said, heck with this. And they put the hook on it from the tow truck, drug it out to get it out. Two bottom lines on this one. One, they found out the windows were laminated, and they're laminating windows now that make them harder to shatter and break. Ah. So they're now having to research what techniques can we use to break the windows underwater. Because you know as well as I do, you underwater, you just don't have that force no. you know, to do something. You're not so getting that, gonna... that quick strike to it that gets it to shatter. Right. So now they're going to have to look at some different tools of how can we break these windows that are now, I won't say reinforced, but are much, much harder to break. Uh, so that's a big part. They're actually uh, trying to get permission to sink some cars and go and, pr- and play with it because they, they're based by the year. Some of the newer ones now have that. Mm-hmm. And it said by 2022 or something like this, all the windows and all the cars will have the laminate. Something else I'm kind of curious about since we started mentioning newer cars, what does an electric or hybrid vehicle do when it's underwater? Is, is that uh, like? Short now, but I don't think you're going to have any fire. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just thinking: is it is it kind of like kissing electric eel? Is is there going to be a little bit of a current, or is it just going to short back to itself? That I don't really know. It's an interesting aspect. Yeah. In the salt water, it wouldn't be a big deal. I know that straight currents in fresh water can be a big. Deal. Yeah, it'll be interesting, so be interesting to see what uh, you know, Jim. Next time he's on, we'll have to ask him. Yeah, the second part of this was. After they recovered the woman who was, I think, I think she was in her 60s, they got her in the ambulance doing CPR, got her heart beating again. They got to the hospital, transferred to a different place, and my understanding is 
she was up and talking up. She was talking to one of the doctors. This so, is after being underwater for 45 minutes. So she was underwater. Oh, so oh, so that's when they were trying to break that's the window, they were trying to get her out. Yes. Oh, I, I didn't quite get I missed that part. I thought that they, you know, she had gotten out and the car went in. I no, didn't realize no, she was the still in there. just partially open. They wow. couldn't do they couldn't get her through the window. Because yeah, it used to be they only considered that, you know, it was young people because they had that reflex that would kick in that and were surviving. that was, was also, right, that's what was mentioned at the club meeting. This was highly unusual for an older person to do that. She did not live, though. She died the next day from complications of the drowning, which is quite often because you'll get the pneumonia in your lungs and an infection and they can't stop. Wow. But part of the item is you don't stop just because you think they are, you know. Oh, yeah. You do what you can do. And yeah. they did. So it's a learning experience from two different ways. Just because they're old doesn't mean they're not alive or cannot be resuscitated. And the other now is how can we make sure we have the tools necessary to quickly break the windows to get people out quicker. Mm-hmm. Now, and part of their other protocol may be is if the wrecker is already there, when you get there, put it on the car and drag it out. Yeah. Yeah, because you could drag it out, and as you're dragging the car out, you could still be working on the windshield. Yep. So that's going to be interesting. Wow. Well, I don't think I've got anything more. We had a club meeting that I, I couldn't make. Uh, was it this week? Yes, it was yeah. Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah, but we are getting to that time of year, even though it doesn't feel like like it's uh, dive season here other than ice dives. Um, before we know it, it's going to be nice. So time, if you haven't gotten your gear service, time to get it in there and get that done. And I keep, darn it, i got to uh, pick up that tank. That's well, every day last week we had snow flurries sometime during the day, every single day. <laughs> this week I've had snow flurries here twice yeah. in the morning. And I've had snow on the ground or, you know, leftover snow still. So it's it's getting better, but it's still not. I think the high day was what forty one, forty two. Oh, yeah. And windy. It was sun. Windy. It was sunny though. At least I, the sun, I can kind of feel like it's not too bad. Now the, the all right. If you're inside the house, you got the sun coming through the window by the heater. You just play like <laughs> a cat. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. The the thing I'm noticing is that I need to. <clears throat> it's almost time to start mowing the yard. Uh, some well, of the don't pre- even start me there. I've been meaning to take and put the uh, fertilizer out. I shouldn't say fertilizer. I should say weed killer. Weed killer, yeah. The weeds have already started growing really good. Yeah. And if you haven't noticed, we do have some trees that are budding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a couple of them have started, Yeah, which makes sense. I mean, we are midway through April. We had sleet, I think it was yesterday, I saw some coming out. So hopefully the, the fruit crops aren't weren't damaged. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, do you have anything you want to, oh, did you have a, a safety story, anything you want to cover? Well, actually, I do have, a, this is a, going to be a long story, but I'm going to read it. Okay. And um, at the end of it, I want you to tell me if you think you saw anything wrong or if you would have done some of the items that this individual did. Okay? Okay. The title of it is, An Inexperienced Diver Gets In Too Deep. It was gloomy and dark when Steve and his buddy reached the barge sitting on the lake's bottom. Steve was excited for the dive despite the conditions. He was setting a personal depth record and couldn't wait to tell his new friends back at the shop. He and Alan swam around the barge at its deepest point and did their best to act interesting. There really wasn't all that much to see, but it didn't matter. Diving the barge was a personal goal for Steve and Alan, and they were finally getting to do it. When Steve noticed it was getting hard to breathe, he looked at his air pressure gauge. That was when he realized he was in trouble. Now, the diver, Steve, was new to diving. He'd been certified just a year earlier. But according to his wife, taken over, it had taken over his life. I made a couple of dives to the ocean with a local dive shop, but he was at the lake diving every chance he could get, came home every time talking about how much fun he just had floating and feeling like an astronaut. He was in good health with no major problems, and he wasn't taking any medication. Now back to the dive. While they had made dozens of dives in the lake, this was the first time Steve and Alan had dived on the barge. It was a deep dive. The barge was resting on the bottom. 112 foot of fresh water. Two divers had been practicing and working up to making a dive at that depth. The fraternity of divers hanging around the dive shop talking about the barge made it sound like a rite of passage. Stephen Allen's were good divers and they were eager to prove they were getting by prove it by getting to the barge, just like the other guys guys at the shop. It was a typical early fall day, air temperatures in the mid-60s when they began the dive. 
The water temperature is about the same on the surface, but as they drop below 50 degrees or drop to the low 50s by the time they reach the bottom. As they descended, the two men followed the chain connected by a surface wire. When they reached the barge, Stephen Allen circled it, and Allen took photos of Steve hovering inside an old open hat. He couldn't wait to show the photos to the friends at the dive shop. The accident. Steve realized it was getting harder to breathe, but it took him a moment to figure out why. He pulled his regulator out of his mouth to see if something had happened to it. Finally, he elected a submersible pressure gauge. It was at nearly zero. As he swam through Allen as rapidly as he could, he uh, signaled that he was out of air. Allen pulled out his alternate air source, gave it to his friend. The two men locked arms, began ascending immediately. They tried to remain calm and remember their training. With both Steve and Allen breathing from a single air source, they didn't make it. Didn't make it very far, for Allen's sank was empty as well. Already on the edge of panic, Steve bolted for the surface where he couldn't get a breath. Allen followed quickly, remembering to exhale as he ascended. When Allen made it to the surface, he looked around for Steve. Took him a minute to find his friend, and when he did, Steve was face down in the water and unconscious. Spotting several divers sitting upon the beach, Allen yelled for help. The divers helped Allen drag Steve to the shore, but resuscitation efforts were unsuccessful. Now, you want me to read the analysis, or do you want to comment on what they didn't do right? Well, the the thing, unless I missed it, did they talk about what type of experience they had? Or they, I mean, these well, were like... They'd been diving a lot, but they obviously had not been doing any deeper diving than this was their first deep dive, meaning over 100 feet. That that would be my question. Had they did they go from twenty to thirty feet, and even if you had fifty dives at that depth, was this the, like twice as deep as they'd ever been before? Because if you haven't been doing a deep dive, you might not realize the difference in how long air lasts. You know, if you've got a, wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think they would have scoped that out though as a pre dive plan? You would hope that they did. Because yeah. when I when I heard the depth, and I'm I'm assuming being somewhat inexperienced divers, they're probably diving on an eighty. Uh, you know, usually your first time you go deep like that, it's you, you don't spend any time down. You just you come down. You know, your dive plan should reflect that. You want to have plenty of safety. So that that would be my thing. Is they were probably diving too deep for their training and their experience. They weren't watching right. their a, air gauges. I'm guessing they were probably narts that had never experienced that narc condition, which would explain the, you know, wow, you know, the 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 not watching the gauge and then also the uh, looking funny at their own regulator, like, hey, what what's this thing? Um, okay, the analysis I have here, the fundamental problem on the dive was a failure on the part of both Steve and Alan to monitor their air I mean, you got two guys both looking at the gauges. Their breathing probably is pretty close. They most likely used air faster than they expected. We can only guess. But they could have been breathing hard from excitement or the cold. Maybe they didn't realize how quickly they were using the air supply at the depth of the dive. It is also possible they didn't take into account the time it took to descend to 112 feet, or they are both suffering from the effects of nitrogen narcosis. Whatever the reason, both men neglected to look at their submersible pressure gauges until there was a problem. When Steve ran out of air on the bottom, the two divers remembered their air share training, gave the appropriate signals, they acted well, they headed to the surface. Alan still had gas that he was sharing at the point, but when they both expired the, the gas from the supplies they were co-sharing, one darted up and the other one took his time thinking about the breathing aspect, didn't want to embolize. Um, that considering Alan made the exact same dive as Steve, this is not all at all surprising. Quite possible that Alan would have run out of air during the descent, even if he hadn't had to donate half of his air to Steve. At the moment, only halfway to the surface, both men now faced making an emergency ascent out of air. They said cave and technical divers always use the rule of one-thirds. One-third down, one-third using it to get back up, and one-third reserve. It says the first user, one-third, for making a cave penetration if you were doing a cave dive. Second, for the return to the surface the third for reserve. And it said that uh, while it's probably not necessary for the average recreational diver to plan to return to the surface with 1,000 PSI in their tank, it's important to be prepared for an out-of-air emergency and to be ready to lend assistance if needed. If Steve and Alan had carried a completely separate alternate air source, it could have solved the problem. Panic also played a part. Panic divers forget their training. Only thing they can think of is getting to the surface. They don't remember to exhale on ascent. They just swim fast as they can. 
The autopsy performed uh, on the guy that did drown indicated he had pulmonary barotrauma, which sounded like had he exhaled on the way up or took his time, he probably would not have died. And the other guy, he just dodged a bullet. Yeah. Uh, he didn't come away unscathed. He showed signs and symptoms of decompression illness, taken to a hospital and to the local chamber. We was treated with an AV table sick and recovered from his injuries. So lessons learned. The hard way. Yeah. I would have thought personally that dive planning could have prevented that. And with two people, I can see one getting excited and not looking at the gauge. But between the two of them, I would hope so. But uh, we use this when we talked about several other ones at the dive meeting. And as always, it's like sometimes it's amazing what we do when we're excited to do something. Yeah. Oh, that was my item for tonight. Could that have happened to you? I would hope not. But, you know, we were all new divers once. And it's just, you know, how how much you, you take from your training and how closely you follow it. Yep. Well, you got anything to plug? Well, not really to plug. We do have a couple of us going to go to the sportsman dinner at um, Midway Baptist Church on Sunday or Saturday. Oh, excellent. And we're going to have the scuba display. Very we're going nice. to do a vintage diving gear display. Nice. I think Jim will be there, Mary Beth, uh, myself, uh, Sir Larry. So you're, you're, you're bringing vintage divers. Are you going to show any gear? Uh, I resemble that remark. <laughs> yes, both. We're going to do both. We're going to be able to say, been there, done that, and here's the gear we use. Yeah. Oh, I'm... Right I, off, the people you have there are the older guys who used to dive, so they should recognize all of this stuff. Yeah. Oh, I have a knife just like that with the wooden cork handle, <laughs> which I don't think people have seen for a long time. Well, uh, of course, the double hoses, things like that. Well, o- over Easter, I was at my, my parents' house, and they were giving me some old uh, snorkeling gear they had picked up because they were doing kayaking, and I went to a spot, and they wanted to snorkel. And I was looking at... Because I remember when they bought it, all this stuff brand new, and looking at it now from a diver's perspective, this is all ancient stuff. <laughs> well, did the ping pong balls still float? Yeah, it was kind of like that. Well, actually, that those were fairly modern. It was uh, these are some fancy snorkels they had. Uh, so somebody somebody had uh, upsold them quite well. Which my my parents, when they got into a hobby, always liked to to have some of the nicer pieces of equipment. I know they had some nice kayaks once upon a time too. Yeah. Yeah, they finally sold those a couple of years back because they had the uh, the the long sea kayaks with the the rudders and foot pedals and yeah, those are the way to go. Let me tell you. Yeah, yeah, they 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 had fun doing it and they were they did it for a number of years, but it just got to the point where you know you've been there, done that, hit all the water, and it was no longer fun to heft the kayaks and sleep in the back of a pickup. So. And, and when you're a little older, the body reacts a little more yeah. to the aches and And is that really fun to be wet and miserable and cold? No. It makes no. your body hurt more. No, I'm I'm getting that point with my uh, camp with my son and Boy Scouts. It's like, gosh, yeah, I'm, I was wishing I had a camper. Talking about vintage gear, though, I would still love to find another full face mask that had the double ping pong ball snorkel. So if anybody out there has one, let me know. I'll have to look and see what was in that kit. I don't think it was the double ping pong ball one. Yeah. It was uh Generally you'll find the YouTube with the ping pong cage on the top. Yes. Some some of the brands they had were US Diver, which it was it was in that period where it was US Diver slash Aqualung. So Yeah. Kind of there towards well, I've the been, end. Um uh, hitting the gym trying to do a little bit of swimming and get back in shape. Mm-hmm. Uh so I've been using my full face mask. Yeah the ones that we've been talking about. I've got two varieties. One is a dome, or not a dome, a flat screen, or a flat, fat, flat face. Uh-huh. The other is a bubble. And I was trying to compare the two for the breathing resistance. And uh, I like the bubble one more because I have more vital capacity, it seems like to me. Now, have you, have you tried the uh, that full face one you were, that we, we had gotten? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I've, okay. I've, tried, I've got two different varieties of that. And if you go to the dive shop, if you haven't been there lately, uh, Jim is selling the same or similar ones to that, different manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And theirs are the flat screen or the flat face. Mm-hmm. So I've been sort of experimenting with mine to say, can I overbreathe it? And I can't. But the resistance you feel in your lungs is the same as if you had a, a snorkel. 
especially a smaller barrel stroke. Okay. That you don't overbreathe it, but if you're not in shape, you're gonna you're gonna feel that in your lung. Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be the more not in shape one on that. Uh, hmm. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I, I I certainly need that. I was uh, I've been uh, this robotics competition. You you wouldn't think uh, uh, robotics would be an an exercise, but you know pushing robots back and forth on the field, and you know I, I'm I'm getting like twenty thousand steps a a day during those events. Mm-hmm. So that's the only major I've got. I don't think we have any. St- uh, what is is that uh, the meet and greet? When is that this year? Oh, at uh, Gilboa? Yeah. Yeah, let me see. I've got Facebook. Because if it's the first here. week in May, that's got to be the 5th. Yeah, so we should be less than a month away. Yeah, if I had remembered, I'd look at the dive newsletter. It might have it in there, but I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, I'm, I mean, um, it's hard to be. It's already freaking April. <laughs> it is. Isn't that crazy? Uh, so I've, I've just pulled up the uh, Great Lakes uh, wrecking crew. And the post from yesterday at 11 a.m. says, we are only three weeks out from our Great Lake Wrecking Crew meet and greet, May 4th through 6th, Friday dive and dead animal cookout, Saturday dive, fast uh, feast, dive, campfire antics, and Sunday is either dive and pack up or just pack up and head home. For Friday night, bring whatever dead animal you want to grill and eat. We need a tripod and a grill for Friday night. Any volunteers, don't forget to bring something to share Saturday feast, usually starting around 1 and ending with a question mark. One last item, when you need to register office, please donate to our wood fund. We need $160 to cover that. Uh, they they give us a real break on wood. All are invited from newbies to veterans. Event is good time to start plans for wreck diving season and make connections. Hope to see many there. Hope to meet new divers and party with old friends. So the, it's a closed group. Uh, I'm assuming that they're using uh, Facebook, uh, probably a questionnaire or something. So if you search up Great Lakes Wrecking Crew uh, and ask to join, mention that you heard us talk about it here in the show, they might let you in and you can find out more details about it. And even if they don't let you in, you can go because it's a open right. house. Yeah, yeah. And I think Bob will be there for sure. <laughs> and and then sure and then if they fi- if the, if you mention us and they don't let you in, let us know. Cause I, <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't work work against you. Uh, we've got a couple, two or three members of the club who who regularly go. Bob and Kevin both like to try and get that. Uh, oh, I was just thinking out, thinking to myself for a second. You said who else is diving? I know that Brian has dove. Uh, Skyler, they've been diving because they've been uh, participating and they look for the yeah uh, the individual. And, and that's our newly minted uh, commercial diver, isn't it? Yes, yes, Skyler is, yeah. uh, and Jason has been, but Jason's been doing actual work, uh, <laughs> welding on on pure supports and uh, seawalls. Yeah. In fact, I think that a Facebook picture of him today is uh, on the surface, and but he said the after the first foot, everything else all the way down to the bottom was underwater and six hours worth of welding. I think he said. Uh, so, uh, so the 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 muddy grub dives uh, probably helped him out a little bit, got him used to that near zero. But as usual, though, when you start doing this for a living, you ain't gonna be doing it for fun, guys. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what—that's usually what happens. We lo- we lose all the guys who become commercial, like uh, who I don't want to see any more water. Now, on my day off, I'm not going diving. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it is to that time of the show. Are you ready? Ever ready? Okay. Well, th- th- this is a—it's kind of a, a partially factual story. You know, sometimes we'll go to uh, different locations and you kind of, you get blown out, so you always want to have a backup plan. And usually it's a museum or something else. But the, for some reason, this last time uh, it was uh, we decided to do a visit to a mental asylum. And while we were there, we asked the director, "How do you determine whether a patient should be institutionalized?" And the doctor said, "Well, we fill up a bathtub and then we offer a teaspoon, a teacup, or a bucket to the patient and ask him or her." to empty the bathtub. And then I said, oh, I understand. A normal person would use the bucket because it's bigger than a a spoon or a teacup. No, says the doctor. A normal person would just pull the plug. Do you want a bed near the window? (laughs) (laughs) That's what we get for listening too closely. (laughs) 
<laughs> not thinking out of the box. And that's where they put you in one. Yes. That or a cage. Yeah. That is a good one. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Watch your air pressure gauge. See, a shout out to his son, Finn, that got his patio open water on April 8th. Yeah, so way to go, Finn. I saw that photo. Did you see that, Mac? If you scroll up in the Discord, no, I have they have a photo of father and son there. And uh, Oh, whoop, I'm going up there now. Oh, yeah. Isn't that awesome? Oh, yeah. That is great. Did you get cold? Followed my daughter out when I was diving with her. Oh, that's that that awesome. Yeah. Uh, Someday I'm going to get one of my kids to go diving. As close as I've gotten to them is to breathe off the regulator in a pool, but someday. I want to go to Australia and dive. You said you're doing an Australian dive? No, I said I'd like to go to Australia and do some diving. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I not, didn't see that picture until just uh Yeah, not too cold yet. Right? Yeah, that's what. That's also what I love about this. Oh, and then uh, did if you go up a little bit farther, or further, farther, is it farther up, further up? Uh, this dive site can change from three foot viz to twenty foot viz all in one dive. Oh yeah, and he was also saying that was his hundredth dive. Yeah, one hundred. Way to go! I, oh, I think some of that was posted before I finally got on. Yeah, well, and some of the, it looks like they got they were on the weeks we didn't record and we're chatting. So yeah, the chat room's always there, guys. So if you've been invited to the Discord, you can always watch and get on there and meet and chat. He was saying the water was 18, 19 Celsius. It's probably a little nippy. I'm trying to do the math calculations in my head. I was too. It's got to be um, 60, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not. That's two point something. Yeah, I'm not. I was listening to somebody today uh, talking about space travel, and it was an American, and he's got an international audience on his program, and he, he runs in the same thing. I can, I can usually get distance, and I can get weight, but when it comes to temperature, that's such a personal thing. You just get used to... <laughs> You know, whether you like 70 or 71 or 74, but, you know, is, you know, I, I is, is 39 boiling a lobster or is 36, you know, nice bath water? I, I, I can't tell. Yeah. Well, 19 would have been about 66 degrees. So that's good wet weather.